This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The NBA is back. Where else can a city this loud be this left on? And 30 feet is still in range. Where else is history? Still in the make. The NBA, only here. Season begins December 22nd on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Welcome to Talking Halos, this is Derek C. Apollo, all by my lonesome tonight. It is Christmas week, we're taking the week off, but before we even say goodbye, we want to leave you with an episode, our part three of interview with, that's right, C.J. Wilson. Great interview, a lot of interesting things to say in there, we'll flash back your memory a little bit, and hopefully explain the game a little bit better. Before you go on any further, I just want to ask you to head over to iTunes, Apple Music, wherever you are, please, please leave a five-star review, really appreciate it, and of course... When you get a chance, share the podcast out. With all that said, we are not going to be doing any of the major sponsors today. We're not going to um, take all this time to go any deeper into the show logistics. That's for another day. <laughs> Maybe even another year, by the way, looking at it. So we do watch this interview with you. Here it is, C.J. Wilson. Check it out. All right, folks, we're back here with C.J. Wilson for part three of the interview. C.J., I got to tell you, man, that the first two parts of the interview went down really well, especially the, the conversation we had about contracts and how they work and and how the Angels did things in terms of how all baseball does it. All of baseball kind of does the same thing, I guess is the best way to say it. Everybody, Every team has its own option to do it however they want. It's their team. They can kind of handle anybody how they want to handle them. It's just a matter of, you know, like, for instance, the Marlins, when Jeffrey Luria was the owner, had an absolute blanket no-trade clause, like, uh, that would that you couldn't get it. Like, if you were used to getting a no-trade clause in a contract, they just wouldn't honor that. They said, no, we don't do no-trade clauses. So it's just sort of the market conditions go the way they go. And, of course, the Marlins then went and traded everybody away. Yeah, well, you got to, you know, they reserve the right to, to do what they want to do. And they did it. Uh, looking now at looking back on your career overall, and I know the way the career ended probably wasn't the way you wanted to. I'm sure you want to go out playing. Yeah. It didn't turn out that way. But looking back on your career, do you have any regrets overall? Um, I, w- I wouldn't say so. I mean, like, I, I never, I can't look back and say that I did anything the wrong way or didn't do anything, you know, to the best of my ability at the time. I, everything that I did was. 100% maximum effort Deadpool style 
And, uh, you know, if I, if I took a liner in the process, that was just sort of the way it went. You know, I, I, I dove for the ball and I ran my ass off and worked my ass off, but I just didn't have that, uh, that skeletal stability of a guy like Max Scherzer or Justin Verlander to go out there and, and get 3000 strikeouts, you know, I just didn't, I didn't have that in me genetically. Otherwise I would have, I'd still be out there p- pitching if that was the case. But looking back at the way the, your Angels career ended overall, I can look and say you had, you know, you did, you did a solid job, man. You did your job. You, did, you, you pitched well. You helped that team get to the postseason. Since your retirement, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on the, on the way the Angels are run now in terms of their future. We saw the whole breakdown of the team afterwards from the minor league level. I did a numbers check a couple weeks ago and found that the Angels in 2015 – at about 270 players who were in the organization, 185 of them are now out of baseball overall. So more, so more than two thirds of that team is that organization is gone now. It's been a complete redo. What are your thoughts on the franchise now and where they're going? Yeah, but how does that compare to other teams? I mean, there's a huge, a huge washout rate for baseball players in general. So, you know, if you make it to rookie ball, whatever, like three percent of those guys make it. So. You know, every there's a there's a slowdown in the funnel as you approach the top of the mm-hmm. the top of the food chain. And there's some teams because they have really terrible draft position. Uh, they have to go buy a bunch of players, right? And and so they they end up because they win too much, so they end up having to buy a lot of players. So a lot of their 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 draft picks end up with other organizations, and and they trade them away all the time. And then you have other organizations that have a terrible major league team. And so, therefore, they give guys second, third, fourth chances because they're in last place every year, and they don't have anybody that's really sticking around from like a – they don't have a Jeter-type player that's going to stay at the position for 20 years at shortstop. So then there's no like – there's no roadblock to any particular player. you know. So there's there's teams like the Angels that have guys like Trout or uh, Cole Calhoun or you know whatever that are going to sort of age – and stay there and, and not get replaced by an internal candidate, you know? Um, and then they've obviously signed players like Upton or whatever. So those guys are going to stick around for a while. It, it's, I, I would say that quoting any kind of percentages would have to also be quoted as saying, okay, this is different with the Rangers or the A's or the Mariners mm-hmm. or the White Sox or, you know, so it's, it's, it would be very difficult for me to comment on that. But I will say that the Angels – in particular, have had bad luck or bad results with their first rounders as a whole, outside of the Garrett Richards, Trout, uh, Grichik, um, uh, Skaggs kind of combo platter that they did that one year. They drafted all those guys at the same time. Yeah, that 2009 oh. draft, right? Right. So that was like their one amazing draft, and then since then they haven't had a ton of first round talent land you know, like on a year by year basis where you have some organizations have a little bit more success or more consistency with their first rounders. And with the way that the pay structure is for first round players now, you know, you have to really hit with those guys because you're giving them a lot of money. So, but every team goes through that, you know, every team goes through phases where they have a really good run in the draft and then they get, they get bashed up against the rocks and then, then they have Mm -hmm. a, a, a good round and, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of a dark art, but, um, I think the Angels from a on the field status would be a lot better off right now. Obviously, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why they could be better off, but um, they're 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 doing the best they can with the talent that they have, and I, I would say that some of that talent is going to get more talented as it ages. 
and then other 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 guys are going to sort of get replaced because obviously you don't need to replace Trout or Otani or some of the, the Heaney or a lot of these other guys. You need to supplement those guys. You need you need three Heenies. You need two Trouts. You need four Otanis. You know you need like couple Calhouns, you need some an extra Simmons, you know, you need another Upton or whatever. You need a, I mean, like, in order to compete with the Astros or the Dodgers or the Yankees, you gotta be a baller team. There's just no other way to go about it. Like, there's some teams that have some incredibly strong squads where they have, you know, all-star talent swept across the outfield or swept across the infield or the whole pitching staff or whatever, and I, I think the Angels have a couple of really, really good key players, but they have to evolve their younger players into better players. So have you been following the Angels over the last four or five years, and do you still keep track of them? Yeah. I mean, obviously it's my team, right? It's where I grew up, and yeah. a lot of my friends played on that team as well. So, but, well, I, was, I was just I mean, thinking along like, the lines of... I'm not, I'm not sitting here telling you, like, oh, well, you know, Cameron Georgian spin rate's off on his breaking ball, and if he gets that better, <laughs> then he'll be okay. You know? No, I was thinking more along the lines of... You know, you played for the Rangers for a long time. I remember in our previous conversation, you mentioned also growing up and you were a fan of, of players as well. And so I know you've been in retirement for a while. You've got this, you work your tail off. We we know that. And I was just wondering how much you actually keep in touch with those guys and with the organization and how much they keep you as part of the uh, the alumni there. Uh, I would say not very. If, if I was going to scale it like on a one to five scale, it'd be like a two. Um, mostly because I think... You know, every organization does the same thing, which is like, unless you're a Hall of Fame player, like literally, you know, like a Jeter or a Cal Ripken or, you know, a guy, uh, a Wade Boggs or, you know, an, an, a really big legacy player, you're not going to get roped into the future of the club in a lot of ways because there's not really an incentive for the club to keep looking backwards unless it's like literally, hey, this is you hitting a home run off some dude in the playoffs constantly, you know, yeah. and they, there's some magic moment. Like I would say that a team like the white Sox, having won the world series in 05 would keep a guy like Mark Burley or Paul Canerco, you know, like super core players from their world series team that they would keep those guys on the forefront. But, mm-hmm. you know, you look at a, a player like Oral Hershiser with the Dodgers. I mean, obviously he was on, he was a massive deal for the Dodgers back in the late eighties and then, but he, I, I wouldn't say that he's necessarily super attached to the Dodgers still. Not comparing myself to him, but I'm saying he was actually a more successful player than I was. And I would say that other than Sandy Koufax, there's not a lot of people and maybe the Jackie Robinson family that are like attached to the Dodgers. So in regards to the Angels, unless you're working in an ancillary business way for them, like Mark Langston doing radio and TV and Gubiza and guys like that, that are sort of in and around the game still. Unless you're actively coaching with them, I, I don't really see a I, I don't I don't really see a big thing there. If that makes sense, you know, because I effectively only played there for four years, and um, you know, other than doing what I did for the you know pushing the limits on the physical therapy rehab uh, fitness program nutrition stuff, which I was very involved in, which apparently all the pitchers use my stuff now, meaning like my routines and my physical mm-hmm. pre games and all that stuff. Um, I, I don't really know what they would ever want from me, you know, like, and that's not to say that I'm some washed up, like nobody, but it's more like, you know, I, I just think that they have, they have a lot of very highly paid coaches that are designed and, and driven to do that. So I don't really think they're looking to add to the coaching staff, nor would I really be available for that. Cause it's, you know, frankly, 
hours and hours and hours away from my house. So other than texting people, you know, and, and, and watching games on TV, there's not really much that I can do. I mean, I offer encouragement to every player that I still stay in touch with and say, hey, good game. Like Heaney had that, you know, career game with 14 yeah. or 15 strikeouts the other day or whatever. And I texted him. I said, dude, you deserve a Dr. Pepper after that because we would always joke about all the ingredients in Dr. Pepper. And it was sort of a joke because Heaney is like a really calm, you know, guy, but he gets very excited about certain things, although he's like really – still waters run deep kind of deal. Like you don't really, unless mm-hmm. you sit next to him, you don't really know how much personality he has. Cause he just doesn't see the need to like go out there and talk about himself, but he's actually super funny. He's very smart. And, uh, so we would always joke about, you know, all these crazy weird ingredients in, uh, in Dr. Pepper. So we it, like, as a, as a, it, it's like two nerds sitting there saying, Oh, you know, the number pi is 3.14151928 or whatever, you know, and just rambling off as many numbers as you can in that are actual actually real numbers for for the definition mathematical definition of pi. That's how him and I were about Dr. Pepper for like a couple of years. So it was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> so just background. Over, yeah, I mean, that, I mean that's those are the stories we want to hear too. Uh, about your career though, the Angels, what was your what was your highlight moment? Like, what was the moment you look back and you said, you can, well, you can look back now and say, that was my highlight being an angel. That was the, the best game I pitched there, the, the best game I was a part of. The, the memory that stays with you the most. Um, I don't know. I mean, to be honest with you, I, I, I sort of felt like I was just sort of out there and, and uh, like I had some, some cool plays that I made and some things like that, but it, it sort of just, I mean, it kind of felt like I fell short personally on a lot of stuff, even when, uh, you know, I threw a complete game or a shutout or whatever. It was, it was more like, I remember just a sort of general distaste for um, certain aspects of how things went. And, 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 and so for me, it wasn't really like the sweetest sweetness. Um, I did throw a shutout. I posted it on my LinkedIn the other day. Um, it's like, cause I, the only reason why I remember this is cause we wore camouflage hats that day. So, uh, we wore camouflage hats. It was either like a, it was a veterans day kind of, it was a veterans thing, uh, Memorial day, something like that. And I, I threw a shutout against the rays at home and that was cool. Um, I, I had one game where I had a shutout going and got pulled after eight and a third. And I was just really pissed off about that. Um, and then Freire came in and got the save. Um, and I remember being mad because selfishly, like a shutout's a big deal. Like if you throw a shutout as a pitcher, like that's pretty stacked, you know, that's neat. Um, uh, you know, I had some games like that, that I thought were really good. I obviously like with the game that we clinched to go to the playoffs in 14, uh, that was a really weird year for me. Uh, I got hit in the head and with a line drive in, in spring training and didn't really ever kind of get my consistency where I wanted it to be. Um, but I, I was throwing a no hitter, you know, and then gave up a single in like the seventh inning or something like that to, to clinch the the playoff spot, um, in 2014. And then of course, you know, whatever happened, happened in the playoff game sort of sucked, but just kind of the way it goes. Um, um, I don't know. I don't really know what else. I mean, like watching trout play, seeing some of the plays he made, like watching some of my teammates hit homers off certain players that I didn't particularly like on other teams, like those types of things were more what I was excited about, you know, than anything else. In the interactions after our last interview, though, you just mentioned something I didn't, I wasn't sure I want to talk about, but you mentioned it. And that was 
that that last game for you in the playoffs and seeing some of the attitudes of how some folks have cashed the Angels over that one performance, what would you respond to somebody who would give you the give you a hard time about that one game, that one moment where things didn't go your way? I mean, if you like obviously it didn't it didn't go my way, so that's that sort of is the way it is. I think that and I had talked to um, I got in an argument with Sosha before the series started because he said that they wanted to have Weaver pitch game one, Shoemaker pitch game two at home, and then me pitch on the road. And I said, dude, I don't need extra rest right now. Please let me throw it home. I don't have good career numbers at uh, Kansas City. There's something about the way that the mound or whatever, I, I just, that's not like, it's really not a good place for me to pitch. And it, with extra rest, I don't think it's necessary right now. Um, and so I sort of like, they kind of like changed the rotation around at the last minute, right before the, uh, the thing. And I mean, granted that was the year that shoemaker was, I think finished second in the rookie of the year. Mm-hmm. So, um, but you know, I felt better and I had really good success against Kansas city at home, you know, that particular team, that particular year, I pitched pretty well at home against them and I didn't pitch well on the road really ever against Kansas city. I don't think, I mean, I might have one or two games there where I did okay, but for the most part, I didn't really have a lot of success there. Um, so it just, you know, and then like, uh, I mean, a couple things like Lorenzo Kane steps in the bucket hits like a ground ball that we're playing like in this crazy four hole position and like it rolls down the line. So it's a double. I mean, it was like, all right, well the dude hits a ground ball like at 34 miles an hour and it's a double for some reason. It's just sort of that's that's the nature of playoff baseball. That the same thing had happened to me multiple times. Like we're playing in Detroit, and and I think it was Miguel Cabrera hit a ground ball and it bounced off third base and went over Beltre's head when I was in Texas. And it was like, and then you know, Victor Martinez hits a fly ball. It's kind of a broken bat, little duck, and like Nelson Cruz like like slides for it and mm-hmm. and kicks it, and then it turns into like a triple. I mean, th- things like that happen. And it's just it's magnified in the playoffs. Um, I happen to have had it happen to me a bunch of times, and I don't know if that's me, you know, like having one of those uh, "here we go again" moments or whatever. But um, you know, you can't undo anything that you've done. That's really what it comes down to. And um, they, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I didn't really have a chance. I it was uh, you know I turned around at one point after giving up a hit. And then I saw the bullpen warming up. I was like, dude, it's the first inning. What are we doing? You know what I mean? And then that was kind of, that was kind of it. But I had, I had sort of, I'd say like consistently, um, uh, not agreed with the lack of defensive charting and some of the stuff that we had done. And I had, I had voiced my opinion on that. And then, you know, that, that was sort of a consistent thing, consistent thing, that I got in into, you know, I, I wouldn't say arguments with because arguments would imply like a two way conversation. It was just sort of like I would talk to a wall, you know, about the team. They did zero analytics at the time, you know, and before that about like we need to play certain guys in certain positions because when I pitch, this is where they hit the ball off me. And it was like completely deaf ears for for four years, you know, and it wasn't really until um uh, Billy Epler came in that they really started to actually do what all the other teams had already done at that point, which was to start looking at the TrackMan data, the spin rates, 
and all the stuff that now literally is completely ubiquitous across the league. You know, I mean, the whole Houston Astros ground control style defense where they literally place guys in certain positions and knowing that it's where their pitchers make them hit the ball, not necessarily just the hitters. Because they would, they would chart the hitters, but they would never chart the pitchers. Like, we never charted the pitchers to say, like, oh, when Weaver pitches, the guy's hit the ball here because he throws this angle. When Garrett throws, you know, 97, and they hit the ball off him like this because he throws at this angle. So I really had to, like, I had to pitch to a defense that wasn't aligned the way that I wanted to pitch. And that was always a fight. And I never was able to really win that fight. And it was very frustrating for me, you know? And um, going from playing with Texas where it was kind of like, okay, Hey, listen, like whatever the starting pitcher needs, Elvis and Beltre and Kinsler and those guys are going to give them because the idea is to limit the damage and limit the runs being scored as opposed to like, Oh, well, we're going to play like this. And if they beat us that they're just the better team that day. I never understood that attitude. You know, it never made sense to me, but that was always the attitude with the angels was if we get beat, it's because the other team is better. And I was like, uh, if we get beat, it could also be because we're not preparing as hard as the other team. Like, that's also a possibility. Oh, no, no, we prepare. Like, well, running hard to first base doesn't really mean anything when it comes to charting. You know what I mean? So it was just something that it was – there was there was some players that wanted it and some players that didn't. And some players hated the shift. Some players loved it. It was just – it's just a very individual thing. But for me, I always wanted the players playing on the corners, like playing heavily towards the corner of the field yeah. because I felt like – that's like if a dude hits a single, like whatever, I can get a ground ball double play. You know, that's sort of my thing. I'm a ground ball pitcher. But if a guy hits a double, I can't defend. I can't strike everybody out. I don't have Max Scherzer, Garrett Cole type stuff. You know, I can't just blow dudes away. Um, and, and I'm not a fly ball pitcher, so I don't want guys to hit the ball in the air. When they do hit the ball in the air off me, typically they hit it a little bit harder than certain guys because I – you know, just the way the ball, like Weaver, Weaver could get away with being a fly ball pitcher, but it didn't work for me, you know? And it was just something that, um, you know, he was the best pitcher that the angels had for a very long period of time. So they were sort of like mentally gearing towards that type of a defense and that type of a, that type of a, a pitch selection or whatever you want to call it, you know? But I just, I just wanted to be more scientific and, and I wanted access to stuff and it just, you know, that was sort of a consistent thing throughout the year. So when I had, talked in the meetings about hey we need to play this guy over here this guy over there and they would be like no we're not going to do that and i would try to move the guy over there in the game and he wouldn't do it because the coaches would get mad at him i'd be like all right well this is the this is sort of the way it is you know you just hit hit button yeah. a yeah. and you get you get and hit enter and see what happens and like <laughs> you know you can you can see a pattern developing after a while but i don't know i don't know how many runs i i i gave up more or less based on you know, having a certain guy in a certain position, a certain shift, it's very hard to quantify that um, over a career. But I know that my my defense, um, like I would talk to Ibar about it, and Ibar was like the only guy that was really, really, really able to to get away with it. You know, like if I said, dude, I need you to play in the hole, he would play in the hole and said, and I said, listen, I can field my position. So if a guy hits a ball past me, and it's over the mound, I don't expect you to catch it. That's my fault. If the second baseman can't get it, then it should be a single. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, the guy just hit it. And that's my fault because I made a mistake. I could live with that. I didn't want to... I never wanted to pitch to the point where I, I was getting the guy to hit the ball hard enough to hit it right at somebody. I wanted guys to mishit the ball. And if I threw pitches that had a lot of movement, then they wouldn't hit it very hard. The problem with that is, if the guys are out of position then they beat everything out to first base, you know? So there's a sort of art as a pitcher to getting the guy to hit the ball hard enough that it's catchable. 
Yeah. That's, that's a weird thing to say, but like if guys hit the ball too soft, they literally get ground ball hits and flare balls in front of the outfielders. And so you have to be careful. There's a, there's a fine line there. So a couple of different threads I want to go, because you said a couple of really key things and I apologize if this, if this doesn't sound right. When it comes down to that day, that game against Kansas City, it almost seems like the, the way things were presented to you, like you, they're pitching you in Kansas City, you don't pitch well there, uh, you you have some clashes with the staff in terms of let's Let's how rewind you on pitch. all that stuff. It's very simple. We were down two games to none, and the second that I got a runner on base, they got somebody up in the bullpen. There was no point where they were going to give me a chance to throw five or six innings mm-hmm. unless I was throwing a no-hitter. That, it, that's all there is to it. That's the that was the mentality of that particular game from and the I'm, coaching staff. And I'm and guessing that that also affects you mentally as well too. You feel like you're not being backed up and given the chance to succeed. It's not so much that you need backup. It's just sort of like you know how many how many no hitters are thrown in the playoffs, right? You're playing against yeah. a playoff team, and that year they won the World Series, right? So mm-hmm. it wasn't like they were some crap team. I mean, they're a good team. So the the idea was how many innings can I throw. And, and limit the damage. Now, like obviously, Alex Gordon, who usually I I totally dominate, hit a uh, hit a double or triple or whatever off me with guys on base, and that was it. That was effectively my game. So I gave up one hard hit ball. I gave up basically like an infield hit, a seeing eye single. They had me intentionally walk a guy, and then I gave up a hit, and then that's that's the game. That's literally it. So. Um, that's sort of the way it goes. As Ron Washington said, that's the way baseball go. So there wasn't the only thing that I could have done differently in that whole sequence was make a better pitch to Alex Gordon. I thought I made the right pitch. I threw him a slider. This is the thing, right? I literally remember every bit of this. Yeah. If I would have thrown him another two-seamer inside after I'd thrown him a previous two-seamer inside, I probably would have gotten him out. I probably threw the wrong pitch. That's probably why he hit it. And I threw it in a way that allowed him to sort of like just throw his bat through the zone. And it wasn't a pitch that was like right down the middle. It was on the outer half, like, you know, but it allowed him to get extended. And that's sort of his bat path. And and previously, I, I, I got him out really, really, really well because of the fact that he would swing and miss on that pitch. So that pitch was supposed to be a swing and miss pitch based on the fact that I had thrown a fastball inside and blew his blew him up. I think he even broke his bat, and he had to go back and get a new one. So he comes back out. So typically, what happens there is the guy's like, "Screw this! I'm not going to let him do that again. I'm going to get ready for that fastball because he's going to throw it right back in there." Because at this point, Alex and I had faced each other enough times that he sort of knew my deal, and I sort of mm-hmm. knew his deal. It wasn't like he was some guy out of nowhere. It wasn't like he was Ronald Acuna, and I and we'd never seen each other before. And like it's his rookie year, or Soto, or some guy like that. That's like first or second year in the league. Alex Gordon at this point has been in the league for like 10 years, eight or 10 years, you know? So I throw a two seamer inside. He fouls it off. I throw a slider outside. He drills it to left field. I literally thought the ball was going to get caught because I didn't think he hit it as hard as he did. It was one of those deals where like the pitcher feels stupid afterwards. Cause he's like, oh, okay, Trout's going to catch that. And I was like, Oh my God, did that, how, how the hell far is that going? Jesus. And then I'm like, well, that game over for me. Like, that's literally how fast it was. And so uh, that's that's the sequence of events. If I throw another two-seamer inside, like, he was he was kind of thinking along with me. And he was he, he, he guessed right, you know? If I throw another two-seamer inside right there, he probably swings and misses at it by three feet or breaks his bat again. 
and either hits a tapper to the first baseman and we get a double play or we're out of the inning or, or whatever with, with one or zero runs, you know, and then I probably go back out for the second inning and then have a conversation with the pitching coach. Like, dude, are you seriously warming a guy up right now? Like what, what's the deal? Cause generally what comes, what happens is the first guy out of the bullpen in the playoffs is so juiced up. So like energized that he just throws fastballs as hard as he can right down the middle. Cause he doesn't have his, feel for like where to put it and i've seen it happen multiple times that like a reliever comes in in a close oh, game yeah we've, we've all seen that so he's so amped up that he that boom home run you know boom double and it doesn't really slow it doesn't slow down the scoring at all you know what i mean and so that particular game i think we we ended up hitting james shields around a little bit we ended up scoring some runs off of him and um so it wasn't like we were losing six to nothing in the first inning right i mean it was like i think i think we hit a homer off him in the first inning. trout had a homer off him so it was like either two to nothing or one to nothing or something like that so i give up a couple runs and i'm kind of like all right well it's still a tie game or you know whatever it's not like it's like we're in the game it's not like it's not the end of world scenario right if that makes sense yeah so contrast that with a couple years before we're playing game seven in st louis carpenter literally gives up two runs in the first inning and then doesn't give him any runs after that. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think the way that my season went at that point, you know, the coaches felt like, hey, if CJ is either going to throw a no hitter or he's going to get rocked and we're going to it's going to be unstoppable one way or the other. So we either have to. So if he give up, he gives up any hard hit balls. We have to pull him out of the game because he just doesn't have it today. And I think that's sort of the way they felt, and that's you know the way they pulled me out of the game. And and granted, like you know, I gave up runs. I gave up a, a smoked like laser to left field from Alex Gordon. So that was the end of my day. But you know, if, if someone wants to judge me against that, against the I don't know what ten thousand pitches that I threw for the Angels, like all right, I made one or two bad pitches to the Royals like one day in my life. If that's the way it goes, dude, that's the way it goes. And people are never going to understand, really understand baseball if that's the way they look at it. Like, hey, we didn't score any runs in the first two games. We lost two games before that point. We were basically we're down 0-2 to two before that game even started. So did I lose the playoffs for us? Or did we all? Did we as a team not do any of the things we were supposed to do or wanted to do that season? I think it's more that. I think we we didn't play up to our potential in that series, you know? And, and and that's all of us. And I, I don't yeah. think it was just me. Well, I don't think it was just you either. I, I It's amazing to me, just in conversations with, you know, especially social media. And when you when you host a podcast and you can't, I was, you know, I was one of those average Joe fans until I started this thing. I'm still an average Joe fan, but with a podcast. So you still talk to a lot of people. And it's amazing how many people fall back and go, well, CJ Wilson, this. CJ. You pitch two thirds of an inning, get three runs. You're not out of the game yet. And you yeah, literally, it was like two to three when I uh, three to two when we came out of the game. And that being said, like like I said, I made I made one bad pitch with the bases loaded, and the dude smoked it. So I mean, you know, it sucks, but that's the way it goes. Um, the uh, the thing is though, like you said, it's like how many wins did I get with the with the Angels? How many you know games did I throw over a hundred pitches? How many games did I win when we weren't that good of a team? I mean, there's a lot you could say all you know all these other things. Um, that could have, should have, would have been better. Like 2013, I probably could have won 20 to 22 games if circumstances were a little bit different after I came out of the game. You know, like I left the left the lead with like I think I left 25 leads on the table that year and only ended up with 17 wins. 
So it's like, do I sit here and like roast people for that? No, it's just like our team wasn't that good that year. Like just the way it goes. Like bad luck. If I would have had my 2013 year in 2014, maybe, maybe things are different. You know what I mean? Maybe things are completely different at that point, but also maybe they're not. It, it just sort of, the team that wins the world series, they, they got, they beat everybody to get there and they beat us, you know, it's just like, you can take it however you want to take it. It losing is heartbreaking, you know, for sure. And I know there's people that have a lot of expectations because of, you know, the circumstances of sure. having a big, a big budget team or big name players. But it, I mean, I can tell you from a person, from personal experience, like winning baseball games is really hard, you know, like, I mean, and what I mean by that is like, Winning ninety plus games in a season is you. You have to beat a lot of really good baseball players on a like on a very consistent basis, and yeah, it's just everybody that's in the major leagues can either throw, pitch, hit, run, field, or steal bases like really, really, really well. You know, you're not up against like it's not spring training. Like the stats, yeah, it's it just a completely different ball game altogether. But it is what it is. The overall feeling I'm getting from you, though, about the Angels organization, your time with them, and afterwards, is that they were stuck in the past a little bit in terms of how things were. Is is that uh, the? I mean, in terms of, no. we're talking analytics arguments, like like you're talking about how a pitch is located, um, you know, where where players are going to be, things like that, things that are like becoming common space now, commonplace now. Yep. What were what were some of the pauses about your Angels experience? And of course, was there anything else that really bothered you about your time with the Angels? I, I mean, I don't. There's really no point to talk about all that. I think the best the best way to say it is there's a completely new set of people that are playing for the team, running the team, and all that now. And so it, it remains to be seen whether they can use the modern tools to advance the team past where it was three years ago or whatever else. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. the the team has been sort of I mean, because obviously you have literally the best player in baseball playing for your team, you know? So it comes, it comes down to like how many different layers of support can we put on that player to make all these other things positive. And the thing that I'm, that I, that I want to use as a reference is sort of, okay, you only have, there's only one Mike Trout, right? And, and, and granted I was never as good as Kershaw was at his prime, Right, my prime versus his prime, he was still a better player than me, and my prime was like very, you know, short, you know, versus some of these guys that were all stars for like seven years in a row or eight years in a row, or like Scherzer striking out two hundred guys in a row. I was never as good as those players. I've never claimed to be as good as those players. Everybody wants to be one of those guys, but you're just not if you're not. Right, this is the way it goes. Like as try as hard as I could, I never threw the ball hundred miles an hour. I never had a hundred mile an hour arm. I think if you go on Baseball Reference or whatever the, the, the super analytical uh, baseball, shoot, I forget what it's called. But if you go on there, like my fastest fastball I've ever thrown is 97.9, you know? And I remember the pitch. It was literally a fastball to Ichiro. I threw it so hard that I almost fainted afterwards. And this was when I was a reliever with the Rangers. So I never, you know, like the statistics prove that I had relatively average velocity and I had relatively average movement. That being said, I still had all these other peripheral stats like home runs per nine and, you know, batted ball in play um, ability or whatever. Guys didn't hit the ball very hard off me when I was going really well. Now that was because of my approach to baseball. That wasn't because of my physical raw talent, if that makes sense, you know? 
So I would constantly try to do new things and innovate and do all this stuff like high speed video. And I was told constantly that it was working on the wrong stuff, working in the wrong direction. But come to find out that seven years later, this is literally what everybody in baseball is doing. Rap Soto, high speed video, slow mo, pitching ninja, spin rate true spin axis all this stuff is how they're grading everybody now you know on their potential and all these other things and i was always trying to get that information for myself and didn't really get it you know so i was always like hey you're using this what are you using for let me use it and it was like no you're gonna focus too much on that and not pitch i'm like i don't want to be a computer nerd i want to be a pitcher but computer nerd stats can help me be a better pitcher because that's Literally, the scouting reports are why I get guys out as it is right now, you know? So that was just, it was just always a battle being a nerd in a jock locker room, you know? It was just, that's, that was the nature of it. But now they're allowing nerds to be in the locker room, which is like great. So you have players like Bauer and whatever that are using these stats. And then you have coaches like Brent Strom from the Astros that are like taking guys like Verlander that are, high ceiling guys but aren't really at their ceiling and then they're revitalizing their careers or garrett cole who was never a strikeout guy and all of a sudden now he's leading baseball in strikeouts or throw, throw you know all of a sudden he's throwing a lot of four seam fastballs and he never did that in pittsburgh because they told him like oh you throw hard just you have a heavy sinker just throw a lot of those and we'll just get balls on the ground well it's like that doesn't work like you face a guy like trout you throw him a lot of sinkers he hits it over the fence because that's like why he dominates felix hernandez you know because felix has a sinker so everything's matchups everything is individual human beings and you have to coach and analyze to that guy's strength but even if that guy is not going to be as good as mike trout you have to find a way to get him better than the way he is today and i i i personally think that there's a couple organizations right now that are taking the players that they have and they're squeezing more out of them because of the fact that they they're further ahead with nutrition physical fitness and all that stuff. And that was always a struggle with us. It was always a struggle with the angels. It was never a struggle with Texas. Texas was all about get as fit as possible, eat as well as possible, get as much rest as possible, you know, do this, do that, do this, do that. And they had a, like a much, much, much bigger program uh, towards all those things. Whereas, you know, the angels didn't really, and the angels like, didn't have as much of that stuff at the time. They're starting to kind of see the benefits of that stuff now. But I mean, they could have seen the benefits of that seven years ago and it would have benefited everybody. And that's the thing. Like you spend, you spend a little bit more on like a fitness device and everybody on the team could use that fitness device. Whereas you spend a ton of money on one player, that money doesn't necessarily get used, you know, like every at bat for everybody. But like if, they do if they get a better pitching machine so to speak right this is just super non-analytical but as a corollary conversation if you have a better pitching machine that can throw more more different types of pitches then it can prepare guys a little bit more accurately for the actual game as it's coming in so if you have like a janky ass 1987 jugs pitching machine yeah it's not worth anything if you have a super state-of-the-art oh here's a video of verlander and the ball comes out whoop, and it's coming out at 96 with four seam spin all right you can literally like, and they, they had this at the time that other teams had these pitching machines with video and all that stuff that you could literally simulate any starting pitcher in baseball. They would throw the video up and they would have that guy's fastball come out, that guy's slider with his spin axis and his spin rate. And they were like, Oh, let's go down to the cage and do some flips. 
I'm like, dude, what are we doing? Like spend 150 grand on this system. You might get everybody on the team to bat 10 points higher. Just, I mean, like one extra hit a week from each guy. All of a sudden, we're winning more games. And that was those are the types of arguments that you have to have. But then there's people that are there to make sure that the spending doesn't get out of control because you, you know, and it's this constant fight in every organization, not just the Angels, but in every single organization, they fight those things. The difference is that the teams that don't have that much money or don't have a lot of veteran players, that's the only place they spend their money, you know? So they'll spend like $10 million on analytics, uh, weight room, nutrition, uh, I don't know, supplements, uh, you know, sports psychology, you name it, like whatever, every other ancillary thing. Cause they're like, well, we could benefit 25 guys at a time with this, you know? So that's the way they cut the money up. Whereas not every team does the same thing. Well, here's my question for you then, because it's, I, I am really digging you talking about analytics because right now what we're seeing is a kind of a, a lash back at the angels, both Billy up with the general manager level and at Brad Ausmus, the manager, because they have been using analytics the way they have. And let me give you an example. A lot of complaints the other night about the Angels taking Sandoval out at 84 pitches at five and third innings, third time through the line. Now, the, the numbers say that teams are hitting 320 for against the current Angels pitching staff third time through the lineup, and they're taking right. heat for that. But... Another side to, is the is the natural fan, like you said, throwing a shutout to you it was a big deal. Going deep in a game was right. a big deal. Every pitcher wants to go deeper. So how do you, what do you say to those fans? A that have a problem with the analytics in situations like that, but also when you know as a pitcher you do want to go deeper. I'm sure Alston wants to yeah, but, go deeper too. Yeah, but at the same time though, this is a good way to say it, right? You have to you have to look at the skill set of every particular player. And find out, very honestly, are you maximizing that player? This is a great great example, right? Bellinger from the Dodgers. Okay. Now, physically, he can play multiple positions. But he is going to be better defensively at one of those positions. And therefore, might be better offensively at that same position. Because if you don't have to think as much and put as much effort into certain aspects of your game then that means that the other part of your game is not going to be negatively affected because you only have so much mental bandwidth in in that second. Like right now in this instance, I could sit here and if I start texting and tweeting, I will not respond to questions as well as if I'm like literally staring at the screen with my eyes closed, thinking, okay, and, and imagining the scenario, right? So if you have a player or a pitcher that has particular issues because his physical pitch mix is not strong enough to separate the first, the second and the third at bat for those hitters. If he doesn't have enough weapons, then you're doing him a favor by pulling him out early at 84 pitches at five and a third innings. Not only is he going to be probably healthier for his next start because not everybody can withstand the stresses. I'm raising my hand here of throwing 107 Mm -hmm. pitches a game on average or whatever it was. I mean, I had I had stretches where I would throw 120 pitches in like six innings, back to back to back to back, and yeah, it was definitely more stressful on my arm and my body than games where I would throw 110 pitches in seven innings. You know, like that's a huge difference. Is throwing 20 pitches versus throwing 15, 16 pitches an inning? It, it literally is a big difference. So, you know, if he was if he was throwing no hitter 
right? And it all worked out. Then, but then the next game, like I'm saying, I'm being real. Like think about Johan Santana a couple years ago, right? He literally throws a no hitter, throws like 140 pitches. Can't ever, it doesn't ever really pitch again after that. Like he literally like blows his arm out pitching and no hitter. And you know, it's kind of like, is it worth it? You know, so realistically, you know it, that that's the shit job. I mean, sorry about being a coach is you have to make that call. That's your job, not the player's job. You get paid as a coach to make that call. And that's why you're there. And there are instances and contingency plans and all that stuff for every conversation that the front office has with every coaching staff across baseball. Hey, you know, we're worried about this guy. He's been throwing a lot of pitches. This he's never pitched this many innings. You know, like that type of stuff gets said. That's st- that type of stuff gets brought up. They don't sit there and say, you know what? Yeah, whatever happens, happens. Let this guy go out there and blow his arm out to pitch. I mean, you know, and then if his if, if he goes through the the lineup and, you know, only has, you know, 84 pitches through five and a third innings, like, can he get the next guy out on three pitches and the next guy out on three pitches and get six innings out of 90 pitches? Maybe, maybe. But if the next dude's last at bat, he smashed a homer off of him. And you know that like it's starting to get a little bit ugly from a statistical standpoint, from a projection standpoint. And then the next guy you're bringing in has the opposite problem where he he roasts the next three or four batters just as a statistical background. You, you, you play to the numbers. You have to play to your gut to a degree as a manager, I think. And I've played for managers like Buck Showalter that had formulas for how they did everything. And then I had Ron Washington and I had Sosha, like three completely different people, you know, managing me in the major leagues. So I don't know what's right. I never played for Brad, so I can't say that this is better than that. All I know is that when managers get it right, like Joey Cora did last year in the World Series, then everyone's like, oh, my God, he's a genius. And then this year they get off to a bad start. and The Red Sox are definitely not going to win the World Series this year, like newsflash. Um, Maybe it's because David Price and Chris Sale, you know, and 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 those other guys did as good as they could have done and they spent all their cartilage points out there in october you know maybe that's what happened so it's kind of like you know this is this is the, this is baseball there's it's better to argue you know that type of stuff because it just shows that fans are engaged it shows that fans are paying attention sure. and it's and, and no matter what you do like perfect example uh you know Heaney could throw a, a no-hitter, right, his next start out. And then the start after that, he gives up four runs in three innings and is, he has like a, and then he pulls a, pulls a calf muscle, like covering first base. And then, like, what are they going to say? Like, what are fans going to say? Oh, you know what? If they would have had the first baseman playing closer to the bag, then he wouldn't have had to cover first base, so then he wouldn't have had to, like, blow his calf out. I mean, there's always an if. You can if yourself to death, but it's not. It, it doesn't do you any good. The question is: Are the players getting better? Are the results getting better? Is analytics driving the results forward, and are players adapting to that? And do players have the aptitude mentally and the physical talent to take advantage of the numbers and, and stuff that they're given? The proof will be in the pudding, and the players will either evolve and get better, or they won't, and they'll get replaced by other players from the minor leagues or trades or free agency. It's just. That's what happens on every single team. So I don't know how it's going to happen this offseason with the Angels, but you know I would say that they have to get in the game with analytics and that type of stuff uh, because that's that's why the Dodgers are good. 
That's why the Astros are good. That's why um, you know. That's why the that's why the Rays and the A's and some of these other teams have you know chances to win from here here and there. There's other teams that just bash a million home runs like the Yankees or whatever, and then that that just is a completely different thing. But there's analytics on defense, analytics for pitching, and analytics for hitting. Those are three different things. And, and depending on who you have as your analyzer, you're going to get different data sets and, and stuff like that. So there's, there's no like magic evaluation tool, but mm-hmm. there is a sort of track and it's very simple. It's like the stock market. Is it going up or is it going down? Is this player getting better because of what we're telling him what to do or is he getting worse? You know, you can't, you're not really going to stay the same. You're either getting better or you're getting worse. You know? Yep. So taking all that, like you, you've talked about, that's a lot. Sorry. That's well, a lot. But. No, it is, but it's, it's, it's taking me full circle back to you now because you were a guy who was constantly trying to get better and everything you did. You have already talked about how you were limited in certain, certain ways. Athletically, you weren't, you weren't built a certain way. You, you didn't have the, the hundred mile an hour fastball. And now you're out of the game. You have your own business. You work, you work, a lot of hours a day. How have the lessons you learned playing the game of baseball now helped you professionally in a completely different field? That's a great question. Um, I think the biggest thing that you can say is sports in, in team sports specifically are a fantastic crucible for testing out management principles as well as uh, process principles. Now, what I mean by that is everybody that's really, really good has a good process. Every team that's really, really good has certain elements that are exactly the same as a really good business. Okay? You have to have a certain base level of talent. Otherwise, there is no chance because you are competing with other people that are trying to beat you. Yeah, if you're an artist or something like that, you don't have to be a team player. You don't have to. It doesn't matter who you're competing with. It's a completely subjective field. You're either liked or you're not liked. It's different if you're a construction guy and you're either delivering buildings on time or you're not, or you're a pilot and you're either crashing planes or you're landing on time. It's like baseball is really the most meritocracy-related job that I will ever have in my life because this is what it comes down to. If you strike everybody out and you play really well, you get a win. And even in the games where you lose but you pitched really well, you still have like, you know, you still get accolades to a degree. Like if you go out there and you, you get like a quality start, you get a gold star, even if you, know, you could have struck out struck out eight guys or something like that, you can still make the highlights and make highlight plays, even in a losing effort, if that makes sense, right? You have to have a base level of talent and work ethic to be a good player you know, if you're going to be a star player. Okay. So car dealerships, commercial real estate, you know, construction projects, just regular business out there, just running a restaurant, any, anything out there, right. That you're not doing it completely by yourself. You need to have great communication and you need to have tasks and goals that everybody's aligned on, on a consistent basis. You need to have methods that people are aligned on. And when you have methods that are really 
class leading and best practices, you win more often. It's the same as baseball. It's like if everybody on the baseball team is well-rested and getting a lot of sleep and eating really well and focused on winning, then the team is going to be pretty good. If the entire team is focused on partying and doing their own thing and everybody hates each other, the team's not going to be any good, you know? And yeah, that's just sort of the way it is in any team sport. And I think that's something that people need to, if people want to be more successful in their own personal life, you know, then they need to, they need to hold themselves to a certain standard. And if you're just sort of like, well, I'm a little bit better than this guy. So it's kind of like, you know, that's good enough. You're never going to be a champion level player. If you have a champion level player mindset, you're going to be like, I need to be the best and I need to see what the best guys are doing. And I need to find a way to reinvent their stuff to be even better than them. The difference with baseball is that I don't have to throw a particular speed. I just have to have a particular accuracy and response speed, you know, to the text messages from a customer or the emails through the server or something like that. If I'm going to be a really good car salesperson, I have the knowledge to, to talk about a car. So that's kind of like the scattering report. Mm-hmm. And then, but then my, my work ethic sort of shows up in my, my day to day routine, you know? I have a messy. I always had a messy locker because I, w- I didn't spend a lot of time in front of my locker. You know, I would like throw stuff in my locker and then go back to the weight room. Throw stuff in my locker, go back to the you know take a shower. Throw stuff in my locker, get dressed. Throw stuff in my locker, go eat. And that's kind of the way I am at work. Like I have a somewhat messy workspace because I don't spend a lot of time like at that particular workspace. You know, so. I'm more mobile and traveling and moving around on the dealership, interacting with a lot of players and stuff like that, that we have here at the store. And so that's kind of, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a different role. It's like, am I a team captain or am I the manager? Am I the general manager? You know, like I don't know how really to draw it across, but it's kind of like, I'm kind of like a player coach, you know, it's sort of, that's sort of the, the, the place that I function in where I still handle customers and do deals but I'm also working with the corporate side of things and, you know, meaning like I have to talk to BMW corporate or Audi corporate or Porsche yeah. corporate or whatever. So I would say that just spring training is the best, uh, prep for real life, especially being a parent because spring training, you wake your ass up at like five in the morning every day yeah, yeah. and, uh, you get your workouts done before you go to practice. And I think that's sort of how a lot of people that are successful and fit in their life have to live post you know, baseball is you have to get your stuff done early and you have to get it done before the sun's up a lot of times because your kids, once they wake up it all, it's all about them and you have to do everything to get them dressed, fed, put in clean clothes and sent off to school. Um, and that's a big part of my routine right now. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I just think like baseball, unlike every other sport, you have to work pretty much every day. So you have a willingness to work every day after baseball. And that, I think that's, that's where, that's the biggest thing is it, the cars are, you know, the dealerships open every day and online it's open 24 seven. So yeah. I have to, I have to show up to work and make sure that other people show up to work and have that accountability. But the stats don't lie. We're not that big of a store. We don't sell that many cars. We're just sort of like a, a mid market team, you know, um, in that regard. And, uh, so we have to come up with new and exciting ways to innovate, uh, the same way that, Tampa or Oakland or somebody like that would sure. because we're not we're not in Beverly Hills or Newport Beach or Irvine where there's like a ton of people just you know throwing money at cars. There's just not as many people here. There's the, the the buying pool is not as big. You know, it's like 
it's like if you had to draft all your players out of one state, you know what I mean? That's that's the equivalency of being in a small town, you know. So, all right. So, CJ, can you tell us where we can find you on social media? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm on Twitter at Straight Edge Racer. Um, uh, I'm uh, also on Instagram at CJ Wilson Photo and Supercar underscore CJ. That's kind of like my my main stuff. So, I um. I uh, try to spend uh, as much time as possible having fun, showing photos of my uh, my kids and, and my car dealerships and all my travels and stuff. So there you go. And folks, in case you didn't know, he'll also jump in once in a while, like he did with our last podcast, and answer a question here and there. So make sure you do interact with him. Thanks so much, CJ, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. it um, meant th- you've, you've taken two hours of your time to talk baseball with us in life. And we really appreciate that. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Like I told you, good stuff from CJ. Folks, with all that said, we, again, are taking a break for the holiday. We'll see you probably this weekend. Uh, I know there's a lot to talk about, including the Ryu signings and Keiko signings and all that jazz. And we're going to lose the Angels. We'll get there next weekend. In the meantime, have a safe holiday season. We'll talk to you soon. This is Derek C. Paul from Talking Halos. We're out. When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is, what's the word? Delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. The NBA is back. Where else can a city this loud be this left on? And 30 feet is still in range. Where else is history? Still in the making. The NBA, only here. Season begins December 22nd on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV.